Greetings, Soul Creekers. How you doing? I know, you're still an hour behind. So we'll get more lively as we keep going. But hey, I'm so glad to be with you, Shibu Matthew. Greetings from Heartland Community Church down south in Olathe. Uh, now I know, uh, we're going to start with a story, and, uh, and I know there are some sushi lovers out there, right? Is there anyone who loves sushi out there? Yeah? Okay. I love sushi. Like, it took me a little while to, like, get over the hump of this is raw fish, some of it cooked. Sushi rolls, obviously, are a good entry point if you're like, I don't touch sushi. They have cooked sushi. It's okay. So I'm at Sam's Club. Uh, I remember the day. It was kind of late January, a Saturday. And true confession, I lose things all the time, so I lost a key fob to the car five years ago. Don't know where it is. My wife's like been having me price check these things. They're expensive. Like $500 for this key fob. So like, that's like, and I'm not going to do that. We've been living with one key fob for a while for this one car. I get to Sam's and there's this key fob, like kiosk in the parking lot. And I'm like, I'm just going to wander by and it's a franchise thing. And they quote me $250 for this key fob. I'm like, sign me up. I, I am paying my debts for the last five years of losing the key fob. So we've like, we spent a couple hundred dollars at Sam's Club already. And then we go into Sam's Club. So I'm in the parking lot and I spent $250. Now I'm inside and like we're buying more stuff, you know, and just there's the old Jim Gaffigan line, you can buy two caskets at Costco, you know, like that's what you can feel like you can do at Sam's, like you can just do all that stuff. And so our cart's full and there's some sushi in the back. And I'm like, Sam's does sushi? What's the, like there's a $7.95 crunchy roll here, I'll add it to the cart. We keep shopping and then we get to the checkout and you do your self-scan and a really kind Sam's employee comes up to me and says... Hey, you can open a credit card today and save X percent and get a bonus. And I'm like, I don't do that stuff usually because I like to simplify the number of payments and, and things like that and not have six credit cards. But I'm like, I look at my wife and I'm like, we just spent a lot of money. This might, this might be smart to do today. And she agrees. She's the financially conscious one. And, and so we sign up and 20 minutes later, we're still signing up. 20 minutes later than that, we're still signing up and like there's a holdup with the whatever and I got to get my driver's license, which is in the car and the sushi is just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to pick up our kids because they've been at grandma's and so from the moment I picked up the sushi to maybe 90 minutes, maybe two hours later, I was at home inhaling the sushi. I was like, this is delicious, this is awesome. And it was the worst decision I have made in a long, long time. I say this with super soberness and seriousness that I was doubled over in pain for the next three days. It didn't hit me right away, but about 24 hours after eating the sushi, I started to feel like something. And I have an iron gut. Like, I don't get sick when the rest of my family is getting sick. Like, I could be eating whatever's been laying out for however long, and I'm fine. This knocked me out. Like, I, I, I have not given birth to a child because I'm a man, but that level of pain is only something I could fathom as I was just doubled over, like, just this searing pain. Every, like, on, on the, like every five minutes, every hour for five minutes, I was just doubled over in pain. Called into work, had to cancel some meetings. Uh, and, uh, and it was some of the worst pain I've experienced. 
Now, that's a rough way to start a message, okay, <laughs> with, the, with my food poisoning story. But I want you to think of a moment where something made you, maybe it was on the queasy side, uh, or maybe it was doubled over like I was, like, like that kind of pain. Got it? Don't know, don't know what that moment was for you. Uh, now, that feeling of pain that we're all tapping into right now is what I want to explore a little bit today. Now, there's, uh, I got over it because you get over food poisoning and, and things like that. And I finally, like a, six weeks later, I entered the sushi world again. <laughs> Had some sushi last week. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. And it was fine. What I want to look at today is this, this feeling of feeling knotted up, but a, uh, a spiritual sense of that feeling. And actually, Jesus experienced this physical knotting up. And I want you to discover that with me today. It's a, uh, it's a really incredible story because it means that Jesus is 100% human, feels things like you and I feel. You cut him, he bleeds, but he's also 100% God. And so could sew up the wound if he wanted to, like Wolverine style, you know, and like it wouldn't be there anymore. He could do that, but he chooses not to. He chooses to live our human experience being fully God. And... Uh, Early on in Jesus' ministry, he's like going from point A to B to C, and everywhere he goes, he's acquiring people along the way. Like people are just following him. They love what he's saying. They love what he's doing. They also hate what he's saying, and they hate what he's a polarizing figure, Jesus is. People at every moment are trying to trap him, or they're trying to, um, to tell him not to do the things he's doing. And then equally, there's many more people that are big fans of him and bringing him their sick, and, and he's healing them. He's lifting a dead girl up from the dead and raising her back to life. And this is this moment, Matthew chapter 9, nine chapters into Jesus' story, where he's got a following, and here's, here's what it says, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 36. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area. This is Galilee, Jerusalem, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Hear that, every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus just has this compassion. And as he's going from point A to point B to C, he's just checking towns off on the map. It's like, I haven't been there yet. I got to go there. I haven't been there yet. Guys, let's go there. And he's visiting all of them, teaching them about the kingdom of God as he's going. And his words and his miracles and his messages they are compelling and also repulsive to some. Now, there's a word here that I want to highlight for you, and it's the word compassion. And empathy traffics in compassion. Like, that's kind of the currency of empathy is compassion. That's what, that's what I want to suggest today. So take a look at this verse here again, and I've put the word compassion in bold. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because... They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that word compassion has a different original word to it. The Bible was not written in English, but written, spoken in Aramaic, an ancient language, and then translated into Greek. And so there's Greek words for every word you see on the slide there. There's a Greek word that takes the place of it or a Greek word that might take the place of a few words, and we have to translate these things. And so I want to teach you some Greek today. One word, and it's, uh, it, it's actually an onomatopoeia. You know that thing, that, a word that sounds like what it is, like splat? or bam, or it's not that simple, but you're going to learn some Greek today, and you're going to leave a smarter person. You down? Okay. All right. So here's, here's the word. 
splachnatsma. Okay? And that's the word for compassion. We've replaced it here where the word compassion was. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had splachnatsma on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All right, you want to try it? One, two, three, splachnatsma. One, two, three. Okay, well, you, gotta, you just got to be confident with foreign languages. You can be wrong, but be confident, and you just say, Splachnatsma, you know, and it works. Compassion, Splachnatsma, that's what keeps him going. It keeps him looking up towards the hills, towards the new cities. He's just motivated by compassion. Now, uh, here's what compassion means, and prepare yourself, because this is the literal meaning of the word compassion. Here's the slide. It's the Greek word for compassion. There's the phonetical pronunciation right there. And it's to be moved as to one's bowels. I told you to prepare yourself, right? (laughs) Splachnatsma is the seat of love and pity, and it means to be moved with compassion. This means your stomach is in knots. That's what splachnatsma, compassion, means. Means you're not just queasy, but you're in physical pain. So Jesus has this feeling of splachnatsma, this feeling of his insides, his his bowels being twisted. I get in knots when I eat bad sushi. <laughs> Jesus gets in knots when he sees the plight of people. Food poisoning knocks. Shabu out, but the plight of people who he can see and around the world, that's what knocks Jesus out. Now, uh, don't get like hung up on the, did Jesus get sick? Is that okay that Jesus gets sick? Jesus experienced some anxiety and some something in his deep, like intestinal level when people were sick. He experienced some kind of ache and physical body pain. And that's fascinating to me. And today, that's the genius of Jesus that we're looking at, the genius of empathy. I love how Justin phrased it. It's this thing that is transferable to us. Jesus wants to teach us how to be people of empathy, how to see people and feel for those people. Now, my, uh, my compassion, and this book is, is phenomenal, this Erwin McManus book, The Genius of Jesus. Here's what Erwin says about genius, actually. Here's a quote. He says, sympathy, and I want you to think of sympathy and empathy, kind of two qualities of, of caring for people. Here's what Erwin says about sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is often treated as synonymous with empathy, but though they are both rooted in compassion, they are quite different. A person can feel sympathy without ever translating those emotions to action. Compassion can only be fully expressed through action. When Jesus felt compassion for the multitudes, it drove him to action. Erwin says this, it strikes me that compassion causes a mindset shift from the abdication of a problem to the embracing of a problem. See, my compassion usually leads me to pity. Like, I feel bad for that person. And then I can move on with my day and my problems or my successes and not really think about their problems anymore. Uh, But for For Jesus, it seems to move him to a place of empathy, not just sympathy. Whether it's a person in our city, 
needing money on a street corner or someone across the planet in Kiev, Ukraine, my sympathy can be fairly short-lived. Like the next stoplight and I've forgotten about what I saw or the next news article and I've forgotten about what I've read. I can feel bad for their situation one moment and then feel nothing for them the next. And I want to give you a picture of how this move may happen. Sympathy at the top, here's the next slide here, sympathy to empathy. And it's this movement in compassion that causes us to, to really not just feel for a person, but feel with a person. <clears throat> it's like you can feel bad for someone, that's sympathy, the top level there. And you can feel bad with someone, and those are two different things. We saw it in the video. We, we, we've heard it in the songs today. There's a way to feel bad for someone and stay removed, and then there's a way to feel bad with someone and be next to them. This downward move takes you deeper into love and compassion. That's what Erwin writes in this book. And it's true when you look at Jesus. And so we know that Jesus felt compassion, splagnatsma. He felt something inside him when he faced the crowds. When he saw the masses, he felt that. It caused him deep pain and anguish, and he's doing this empathy thing. He could see and feel what people were going through. But the compassion doesn't stop at that sympathy place for Jesus. He gets to empathy. And I want to look at this one scene. So one scene is what we've just talked about, Jesus feeling sick to his stomach as he looks at the crowds. The other scene is one moment, and it happens in this kind of dusty, sandy area, as I imagine. And this woman in John chapter 8 has been caught and now she's been caught in a fairly uh, provocative situation. Like she's been caught in an adulterous act is what the Bible says. Now, two people are involved in any adulterous act, but there's only one person in this story, and that's the woman. And that's because how women were treated in that culture. The man didn't bear any culpability or responsibility for, for most things, but the woman certainly did. And so this woman is taken and thrown down in front of Jesus. And she's thrown down by some of the people we talked about earlier, by some of the people who are trying to trap Jesus, that don't like what Jesus is saying, don't like what Jesus is doing. And, uh, and here's just how the story goes. I want you to see what happens. It's not going to be on the screens. I want you just to listen to the words. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, a crowded place. A, soon, a crowd soon gathered, and as he sat down and taught them, a the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Like right off the hill here, this is a tense moment. You've got a woman caught in adultery being put in front of a crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law, our law, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Now, this is a no-win situation for Jesus. If Jesus says, you're right to the crowd, then he's simply one of them. And if he says, you're wrong, let her go, then he's actually breaking the law that they're quoting to him. And he's in the spot where he just can't win. And the woman is in a no-win situation. She's embarrassed. She's scarred for life simply by what has happened. And her life is on the line in what is essentially a religious political maneuver by some of the enemies of Jesus. She's a pawn in their game to trap Jesus. 
What Jesus does next is the move from sympathy to empathy. Like at this moment, you can feel bad for the woman, and Jesus does that, but he, he moves towards empathy because here's what he does. These angry men are holding rocks, asking Jesus for permission to stone this woman. And all the attention is focused on the woman and what Jesus is going to say. And here's what Jesus does. Verse 6 of chapter 8. Jesus stooped down and started writing in the dust with his finger. There's a woman on the ground, and now Jesus is on the ground. And he's writing in the dust. He's drawing in the dust. This super tense moment, and the Savior of the world is playing Pictionary. We, we have no idea. I would give lots of money to know exactly what he was drawing in the ground. But in this moment, something happens. Like, that's a tense environment, a crowded temple area, dusty, the woman in tears, I'm sure, thrown down in front of Jesus, the, the tears mixing with dust, like there's just this moment, right? And all the eyes are on the woman and Jesus, and then no eyes are on the woman because Jesus takes all the attention off of her, and he's kneeling on the ground, and he's drawing in the dust. They don't like that. They start to badger Jesus. Answer our question, Jesus. Some theologians have theorized that maybe he's writing in the dust some of the sins of the men in the room, the men holding the rocks. I don't know, sounds, sounds interesting. Maybe he's reflecting on some of the scriptures and writing some of those things out. I can see her, the woman, looking through kind of sobbing eyes smeared with dirt as she sees Jesus kneeling down trying to figure out what he's doing but also just shaking in fear for her life. They kept demanding an answer, it says, and so finally Jesus, after kneeling for some time and them badgering him, he stands up and he says to them, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again to write in the dust. I think this, even the move of coming down to the woman's level is just, that's empathy. Jesus is now with her. They're on the same level. And one by one, starting with the oldest and on to the youngest, the men left the gathering. So now there are two people left in this confrontation, Jesus and the woman. Everyone else is dispersed. And Jesus says, he stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said to her, neither do I go and sin no more. The accusers are all gone. They've been put in their place. And the woman has been sent to live a different life than before. So what, what happened in this intense scene? Like, 
what actually, what transpired in this moment? Well, I think empathy happened. It's because Jesus was willing to, to get on her level and be with her in this really scary moment. Jesus felt bad for the woman, but ultimately felt bad with her. And that caused him to act on her behalf. And that sympathy quote from Irwin, I want to read that again to you here. Here's what it says. And see how we can see Jesus' actions in this quote. Sympathy is often treated as synonymous with empathy. But though they are both rooted in compassion, they are quite different. A person can feel sympathy without ever translating those emotions to action. Compassion can only be expressed, fully expressed through action. When Jesus felt compassion for this woman, it drove him to action. It strikes me that compassion causes a mindset shift from the abdication of a problem to the embracing of a problem. This woman's problem became Jesus' problem in this moment. And not just because he was trying to be trapped in a religious debate, but because he loved her. So I think the question for you and I is, uh, is who do we need to make this move for? Like if it's sympathy that we can easily feel and dismiss, or empathy that we can feel with a person and hardly dismiss, who do you need to make that move for? I've thought of a few people. It could be a friend. A friend whose situation you've critiqued. I've done this. These are all true about me. That's why I'm sharing these. A, a friend whose situation you've critiqued, but you haven't gotten close enough to stand with them in their pain. Could be a coworker who you fail to understand and they annoy you, but you just haven't gotten close enough to understand them. It is, and this one hurts, it is likely a family member. <laughs> the closer a person is to you, the more likely you are to, to numb yourself, to blind yourself to what they might be experiencing. And what I mean is this, is uh, I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old, uh, and empathy is a big deal when it comes to parenting. Like, you've got to feel what your kids are feeling, and I am terrible at that. So I'm buckling kids in the car, the eight-year-old can do his own thing. The four-year-old cannot yet do her own thing. And so I'm buckling her, and she's got a book, and I just grab the book and throw it on the floor. And she's screaming about something, but I'm just worried about buckling her, you know, the bottom latch and then the top latch. And Robbie, my eight-year-old, kind of looks over and very calmly says, Dad, she just wants her book. She just wants to have her book. Like, you can buckle her. She just wants her book. And he, he doesn't do it in a judgy way. He's not like anything like that. He just says it very matter-of-factly, like, how could you not? She's screaming while you're buckling her, and all she needs to know is that she's going to get the Splat the Cat book back when she's buckled. I was like, oh. He, so he stepped into empathy in that moment, just had like instinctive empathy just to say, I know what she wants. I know what she's feeling. I'd be mad too if I was reading a book and somebody took it out and threw it on the ground so that they could buckle me really tight. You know, I, I'd feel that too. And it was just this moment of like, I need empathy for the kids, for the spouse, for all the people that are close to me. It could be a coworker, could be a friend, could be someone in your family. It's likely a person in your family. <laughs> or it could be someone on the other side of the world. I want you to think for a moment about what's going on in Ukraine. There's a suburb of Kiev called Buka, and in Buka, there's a school there for training pastors, a seminary. 
And the seminary has 300 people at it. And there are seven staff there that have stayed behind. The 293 others are gone. They've gotten them out of, out of the city to safe havens. But these seven are still there. And they're providing food for anyone in the city. And they're doing the best they can to get people out. They've evacuated thousands of people from this suburb. The president of the seminary, this was in an article I read yesterday. Uh, the president of the semi, seminary, Ivan Rusin, refuses to evacuate. He and seven others are sleeping on the floor of their offices, coordinating relief efforts. And here's what he said. I want you to hear this quote. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to hear it. This war has completely redefined my understanding of mission and holistic ministry. He said, you cannot show compassion from a distance. You cannot show compassion from a distance. You have to be close to show compassion. In the book, Irwin writes this about empathy. It's beautiful and poetic. He writes, empathy is the deepest level of knowing. Empathy is more than simply a feeling for what someone is going through. Empathy is the ability to stand in someone else's place and see the world from their vantage point. Empathy is the vicarious transference of another person's internal world into your internal world. Empathy, at its most profound engagement, creates a mystical connection between people. It's the highest form of consciousness, Erwin writes. Where there is empathy, there is no separation. And then he just bottom lines it and says, empathy is how love communicates. Empathy is how love communicates. And so my question for you today and for me today is, who will we communicate love to? Who will we show empathy to? And our example is Jesus, who knelt on the ground with this woman in her deepest pain and also was with us in our deepest pain and is with you in your deepest pain today. And Jesus is our example for empathy. In a moment, the band's going to come out and sing a song about how close God stands with us in moments like this. Moments when we're in the fire, moments where we and our fellow human beings, all 7.9 billion neighbors on this pale blue dot, are the ones who are in need and the ones we live with, the ones across the world. How do we have empathy for people in that place? Here's the lyrics to the, the song we're about to hear from the band. It's called Another in the Fire, and it says this. There was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me.